Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Broken Laws podcast. Before we get any further and get into it, we're just putting a little caveat on the front of it. Now, this is our Henley wash-up, and I think this is me and Aaron discussing why we were not particularly happy with what we saw at Henley this year. Um, And I think... You know, looking back on what we recorded, it comes over as a little bit negative. And we just wanted to put a few caveats and clarifications on that before we start. That would be a fair, a fair place to, to put it. Loon and I, we watched Henley uh, and we recorded this immediately afterwards. And um, usually we didn't have the cooling off period that maybe let us look back and, and, and filter out some of the some of the things that we've said and the first thing that that we need to say is that what you're about to listen to shouldn't be taken as a as a dig at the at the athletes it shouldn't be taken as a dig at the clubs involved and it certainly shouldn't be taken as a dig at henley royal regatta and its committee who let's be quite frank have have moved mountains to get the regatta on after what has been a, a absolutely horrific 16 to 18 months it's impacted support her terribly and i you know, again, we will say that when we recorded this, um, emotions were running quite high. And that's because both for myself and you, Aaron, I believe that Henley Royal Regatta was an enormously important kind of pinnacle in our lives for a while. It was the shining city on the hill. And possibly some of the language is intemperate. I will stand by the point that we look at issues that are fundamental to the sport of rowing in this country, fundamental to the way that club rowing is organised in this country and do need to be spoken about and do need to be addressed. And we can't just do that by saying, oh, well done, what a jolly splendid regatta this was. And I believe that people have done that. And I believe that, as you said, Aaron, mountains have been moved to make this regatta happen and hopefully be the start of the bounce back of club rowing in this country. So let's let's look at what we mean about the idea of the shining city on the hill. Uh, and let's look at what Henley regatta means to rowing in this country. Now, in this podcast, Talk, we talk about the results of Henley this year, and we talk about why, historically, the funneling of talent and prestige in British Rowing's pyramid is directed towards a space of water between Leander Club and Caversham, and why Henley Royal Regatta has the status that it has, not necessarily as a social event, although we completely recognise that, and at times we've both thoroughly enjoyed that side of it, but why it, it has the status as the pinnacle of club rowing. Now, when I was rowing at Agecroft, the simple reality was that, that I wasn't another Redgrave in, in hiding. I wasn't um, ever going to be an Olympian, a world champion. I wasn't ever going to um, do anything like that. I was a decent club rower. And the thing is that 99% of us in this country fill that category. We are decent club rowers. We, do, we enjoy the sport. We enjoy the camaraderie that it can evoke. We enjoy the training, the time on the water, that that sweet feeling when everything lines up and the crew starts to blend and the boat starts to move. We enjoy the competition. We enjoy the crack. And within that context, 
Henley Royal Regatta is the pinnacle of the sport for people like me. It is, as Lewin said, the shining city on the hill. It is where it is where if we are lucky and we work hard and we fall in with a good bunch of people and we blend a good crew and we put together a good season or two good seasons or three good seasons, we can find ourselves on the start line of the world's most prestigious regatta. And with a bit of luck and many oarsmen that I've rode with ha have done this. We, we will be cannon fodder on that first Wednesday, but through time and application, we might start going through the rounds and we might start doing something at Henley. And for those of us who are not going to be Olympic champions, who are not going to be world champions, who see Henley as another staging post and a, a, another box to tick and, and another medal to get, actually getting there is a huge thing and being competitive there is a huge thing. And when you have what this year's regatta appeared to create, which was the vast majority of the oars men and oars women. And again, we're not criticizing the athletes who, who, who have got to where they are by hard work and dedication, but the vast majority of, of the men and women doing well at Henley and the vast majority of the clubs doing well at Henley, being drawn from a very, very small geographical radius around the area, you are not excluding because they have qualified for Henley. Majority, the, the vast majority of British rowing is not in the Thames Valley. The vast, the vast majority of British rowing is scattered far and wide across the country. And every single one of those club oarsmen and women would one day like to line up at Henley. It is a pinnacle of the sport for people like Lou and I. It is the place that we aspire to go there. And if the only reason you can go there is because you have the wherewithal, either the athletic ability or the funding or the geographical location to be in the right place, to be in the right selector program to go through to Henley, then we are closing off one of the arteries of the sport. We are closing off one of the, the aspirational drives that makes rowers like me get up at six o'clock in the morning and do an erg before a full day at work before going back to the boathouse to do another session and doing that for years just so you can eventually get there. I'm going to agree entirely. And that point is the spirit in which this podcast was recorded. And we apologize if our language seems somewhat snarky or somewhat intemperate but I think there are very, very serious issues to be discussed and they will not be solved if we sweep them under the carpet. The shining city on the hill should not be Oz. There should not be someone behind a curtain show it saying these are the levers that you need to pull to create the illusion and sustain it. Indeed. And so with those caveats in place, please enjoy the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome back to possibly a rather somber edition of the Broken Oars podcast. If you are one of our followers who's recently tuned in for Broken Oars Indoors, we're doing a bit of a wash up of Henley Royal Regatta. And as I described it, Henley Sunday 2021 is the day the music died for me. I've always been able to say that there are two Henleys. When anybody comes to me and say, oh, it's just like this posho gathering in Buckinghamshire, Berkshire border, it's just aristocracy getting together. I've always been able to turn around and say, well, look, there are kind of two versions of that. 
kind of pseudo posh snobbishness of the enclosures and of the car park uh, where everybody's rocking up in their kind of shiny Range Rovers and Porsche Cayennes. Then there is the absolute brutal meritocracy of the track, of the Henley Reach, where you're racing, and in the boat sheds, where everybody is dressed in Lycra, you're all equal, and it's all about what you can do on the water. You know, after this, I think we have to admit is a very strange and possibly exceptional Henley. I, I wouldn't feel honest saying that anymore. I think it's fair to say uh, that Lou and I have a huge regard for Henley Royal Regatta, both the the fact that the circus is in town on the banks when it happens, and the, if, if you are a rower and have any pretensions of being um, engaged in the sport, at some point you will want to row at Henley. And I don't think that we are being particularly harsh about the social circus on the banks. It is very much like a Wimbledon or an Ascot or a, a Glyndebourne or for some people a Wembley FA Cup final or any of those things. We are British, and even though we don't like to admit it, we love our social theatre. We like the pomp and circumstance. It's all part of the fun. It's all part of the street theatre of it. But the thing about Henley for me, as a rower who was self-described as not being particularly good, I was never going to win any Olympic gold medals, was this. It was a meritocracy. The great thing about it was you could start rowing in September, and if you were good enough the following summer, you could line up at the World Showpiece Regatta. Mm-hmm. That's like being able to take up tennis and finding yourself contesting a Wimbledon final on centre court against Roger Federer nine months later. For all of the pomp and circumstance on the bank sides, and let's be quite frankly honest, there are probably one or two percent of the people who attend who can trace their, their lineage back to William the Conqueror, and Matthew Pinson's probably one of them. But the rest of us, largely, it's a show and we'll be paying off the credit card bills or working overtime to pay for it to, to prepare for the next one. That's the reality of it. It's all the fun of it. But now this is not a, merit- a meritocratic event. It's become an arms race, an athletic arms race, where he who has the most high performance athletes wins. And some will have listened to this at, to this point and will now be saying, well, yes, that was it was ever thus, but actually that is not the reality of it. And that's something that we're going to discuss here. It just looks like... If you're a aspiring athlete, if you are a genuinely athletically gifted and well-trained athlete, don't stay with your club. Go and join Brooks, go and join Leander, go and join Thames, Tideway Scholars, possibly Oxford or Cambridge University. Get yourself affiliated to Caversham or essentially don't bother going to to Henley, you, you're not going to, you're not going to do anything there. To give you an example, and I, I have been crunching the numbers. I've got the spreadsheet open in front of me. First of all, we have to remember there are 26 events at Henley. So there are going to be 52 finalists. Brooks and Leander were eligible for 19 of those competitions. They weren't eligible for the junior competitions and they weren't eligible for the club competitions. And we'll talk about the club competitions later. They represented the were representing the final for 16 out of 19 of those competitions. They won 14 out of 19 of those competitions. Brooks and Leander have got a victory rate of 75%. 
And that doesn't leave a lot of space for anyone else. If you kind of then actually break it down further and you look at the people who actually did win, of those 52 finalists, and I think I'm right in saying this, 43 out of those 52 crews were at least partially represented, and I'm including composites in this, so it gets a little bit tricky, represented by clubs that are based less than 30 miles from Henley. It's a kind of dog leg that stretches up to Oxford, comes back down to Henley, and then kind of in a sort of vaguely splurged out shape, stretches into the Tideway in London. This is not a national club competition, as far as I can see. Uh, like 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 a run corner and Northwich, but just with more bells and whistles and, and more media coverage. For which I would give them enormous credit. Yes, you know, anybody can go to Northwich. You know, you can fly in from Seattle, send your boat over on the ship, and you can absolutely mog everyone at Runcorn Head if you want. It's The thing is that... People don't want. People don't want. And the reason that everybody wants to go and compete at Henley is because the idea is it's genuinely the pinnacle of British rowing, except it's not really. It's a place where maybe seven clubs turn up to compete and kind of, okay, may, maybe we'll go as far as 10. We'll, we'll throw Molsey in there. But again, they're all from this, you know, immensely local region. And it feels as though, you know, we've said this, we've said that British rowing needs to get out of the Thames. We, we said it needs to stretch around the country. And I just feel... This rather strange year, this very dry year in terms of overseas crews coming in, has revealed what British club rowing is, which is something of a monopolistic stitch-up. People listening to this will be going, yes, but we qualified or they qualified or this reason or that reason. And we, we, we completely get that. And we're going to get into the historical reasons why there's such a focus on this stretch of water. Where does that leave British club rowing? Are we just some kind of auxiliary to the mighty powerhouse that is the Thames region? Do the 200 clubs a year from overseas disguise a lack of serious competition domestically? Or is it a case that the cultural status of rowing, which has been elevated by our Olympic success, has seen a rise in highly selective club programming and the stockpiling of athletes which means that the pinnacle of the club's sporting game, which is Henley, is out of reach for the vast majority of clubs. And what does that mean for their future and the future of the sport in the country? One thing I don't want to do is suggest I am disparaging the athletes because I'm not. They're better than me. They're mm. better than I was on my best day. At the same time, it's a little bit, difficult not to get the feeling that again there is a monopoly going on there is a monopoly on talent and in the long term if if the whole thing about henley is you go there 
just to be Wednesday, maybe Thursday cannon fodder, and you actually, you don't really have a chance, why are we bothering? Let's go somewhere else. And, and that is going to be the real end result of this. If you can't go along feeling like we've trained all year for this, we've done our ergos, we've done our 6 a.m. Saturday morning sessions, we've done our Sunday evening sessions when we should have been with our girlfriends or our boyfriends, and all that's going to happen is we're going to go along and we're going to get blown out of the water by a bunch of 21-year-olds who've come back from Cal State. In the end, people are going to start to ask, why are we bothering? Is there not somewhere else we can go? And at the final end result of that, someone's going to make somewhere else that they can go. And Henley is going to be greatly reduced. Well, it's going to go back to what it was historically, which was the mafia talk about their their business being, as being our thing. It's going to become the our thing again that it was. There was a moment yeah. where there was a moment where it started to feel inclusive. And let's be quite frankly honest, Agecroft ran up against the very harsh realities of rowing at Henley back when I joined. When but I think we made something like five or six semis in a row and a final, and on pretty much all of them, Agecroft got beaten by Leander. This was a crew with people like John Beresford, who had a 604 erg score back in the, the days when a 604 erg score for a club oarsman was a serious accomplishment. It, it wasn't, here's, here's our star athlete with his 558 at the age of 18. He was a, a, a solicitor. He worked in the law. He had a burgeoning career. He had to combine 50 and 60 hour weeks with 20 odd hours of training a week. You had rowers like Mark Parsons, who is an Agecroft legend pulling himself unconscious just to make the Henley boat. You had Ben Davison, Knuckles in there. You had James Benson, whose job was so demanding that he would go down to the boathouse and do ergs at 10 o'clock at night just to make the Henley boat. And they were routinely coming up against essentially professional full-time athletes in the semis of the Thames, a club event, and getting beaten, unsurprisingly, by professional full-time athletes. And there were times when it was very close, but they still got beaten by them. And the difference was these guys were working full-time jobs and training at the same time and putting into their club and being genuine club men. They rode because they loved rowing. They wanted to be successful. They were Agecroft stalwarts, but they weren't being subsidized or helped to do three sessions a day, 52 weeks of the year. And that's, yeah. that's the difference. You put a question in the notes, Lou, does Oxford Brooks respect or care about Henley? I would say that they certainly care about it because their success at Henley will allow them to sell their programme to the next aspiring generation of rowers. But do they actually respect the competition? When I look at Leander, I mean, as you have written, Leander was almost set up to do well at the Henley Royal Guest. It's, it's part of their mission statement. I think, yeah, they care and they respect about it. But Oxbrooks, do they respect Henley? Or is it to them just a pot hunt? But I certainly would say that Brooks's preordained behaviour in the island race suggests that they don't really respect it. The comments after that, the, the notable one, well, it wouldn't really be Henley if Brooks weren't trying to bend the rules. 
you know, that, that also suggests something else. And if like the most successful exponent at your event doesn't really hold that event in the same regard as the rest of us plebs who you're trying to persuade to come and spend their hard-earned cash as entry fees, that's a real problem. One of the problems with commenting upon stuff that's on the internet is that it can change. And I am not a good enough internet person to, to basically freeze what I've seen in time. But the island race between, and let, let's just let's just talk about precisely what happened. This was Brooks A, ladies eight against Brooks B, ladies eight in the island, which is the intermediate competition for women's eight at Henley. Uh, so it's not the open anyone from anywhere, you know, no matter how many Olympic medals you've won can race in it. It's not the club club competition. They were racing each other. And at the end of the race, they were, they received a very serious warning. And there is a note about this on the Henley Royal Gas website saying that they had been given a warning for unsportsmanlike conduct. They only raced competitively up to the barrier from the start to the barrier. And we know it's competitive because they actually set what was at the time, the record time. Um, it had been set the day before at two minutes, 10, they did it in two minutes and four. So, you know, you got, you got to remember this, that is a big chunk to take six seconds off. So they were racing competitively to that point. After that, it seems as though both crews wound down as though there was an agreement. We're going to do the first bit of this, that whoever hits the barrier first will declare themselves the winner. And the rest of the race was rode at, shall we say, training pace. It was a paddle. So that happened. And this, a very serious warning had been given and every single Oxford Brooks crew at the regatta afterwards had to acknowledge that they had been given, they had to acknowledge a false start. So if they did anything wrong, they would be disqualified. But it's interesting that when you go to YouTube, this race, the individual race is shown as a clip, but the actual clip is only three minutes and 58 seconds long. This is because the interesting bit, it has been cut out. You see the crews racing, they come out past the end of the island, they get about 300 meters in and then it cuts and it cuts to a good 200, 250 meters after the barrier. Now that you, you can say, oh, well, they, you know, they, that's just editing. These are edited highlight clips anyway, but there is also a five hour live stream video from all of Friday, day three. And this is a live stream. This is just what's going out. And that race was recorded live. They've gone back and they've cut two minutes out of that race. So whatever happened was obvious. It was egregious. And somebody in Henley Royal Regatta's department of publicity, they are sparing Oxford Brooks blushes 
So what you're saying is that the most contentious point of the entire week, which saw the most successful club at the regatta, being given a very serious and people who follow football or whatever might go, well, it was just a warning. It's, you know, it doesn't mean anything. The That is the equivalent of, of God coming down from the mountain to Jehovah and going, don't fucking do that again. So don't let the language fool you. That was a serious, that was a serious transgression. And what's happened is that the most contentious bit of the whole regatta has been removed. Now this comes back to the question of, do they actually respect the regatta? We're going to come on to, how, how the regatta is how it is and, and how some of these clubs are the way they are. But but what, what is intrinsic to Henley Royal Regatta and has been since its inception is the idea of Corinthianism, which means virtue oh, no, in yes. sport, which means playing the game, which means doing the right thing, which means not taking the piss, which means that you treat the event seriously and you do not treat it as a carve-up between you and your mates. And that obviously didn't happen in this instance, because if you barrel out to the barrier and you can set a record of two minutes, four seconds, and you essentially then paddle in, that's not respecting the regatta. It's not respecting your event. It's not respecting your opponents. And it's not respecting anybody else in your in your field. And, and can I also say one thing? This is something that British rowing, the organisation, is really starting to push on, which is they have an integrity unit and they are publishing integrity guidelines. And, you know, when I first heard about this, and I, I spoke to someone from British Rowing about this, what they said was every when, when people hear that we're working on, like, you know, athlete integrity and club integrity, everyone thinks, oh, you know, not loosening people's top nuts, not taking drugs. I love the way that you put those two together, like, like not loosening top nuts is, is on a par with not taking drugs. You know, I, I think it's a pretty <laughs> egregious way of winning a race. But but actually what they said, it's at a much more basic level. It's actually going to a race and looking around 750 metres into the, into the heats and saying, we're not going to win this one. Let's paddle light and we'll just, we'll paddle light. It doesn't matter because we've, we, we've got another race. We're in IM2. We're getting beaten in IM2. Let's see what we can do in IM3, but we don't want to kill our legs. It's also not the same thing as, and this happened in the, the regatta, someone racing hard has gone off. They've put five or six lengths into their opposition and they go from 36 to 28 and they hold 28 for the rest of the course. This this does happen, but that but they are still racing and the person that they are racing is still racing. They haven't yeah. wound down to paddle it in together. I, I, I'm going to name names on that one. I'm going to say that was Oxbrooks and the Visitors versus London Rowing Club, Edinburgh Composite, who were widely regarded as a hell of a crew. Everybody was going, my God, they can row well, those boys from London and Edinburgh. So, oof. Um, and to be honest, they could. And then the Oxbrooks Visitors crew came and made them look like J16s. They absolutely smashed them. And they were frankly kind enough to not just smash it in with an easily verdict. They did wind down. I think there is a two thirds of a length verdict against London Edinburgh, but London Edinburgh were going for it for the whole race. They didn't give up. They didn't quit. Because they couldn't see the puddles anymore. 
And they certainly didn't say the other crew, whether it was on the start line, whether it was waiting for the start line, let's just smash it out to the barrier and whoever wins that, because we're not really feeling it today. And we, you know, whoever gets through, let's just save our legs. Um, that That's unacceptable. You know, if it wasn't Oxford Brooks, <coughs> fair enough, um, it would still be egregious. But it was Oxford Brooks. And for some reason, Henley Royal Regatta's media department has gone out of their way to spare their blushes. To a certain extent, most sporting governing bodies and most sporting events are in some ways in hoc to their biggest stars. But this is this is just this stinks. I'm I'm sorry that, that, that if you're prepared to like you're not bending the rules for them. The you're literally prepared to just edit your media feed to spare their blushes. Mm. So it's not obvious. So everyone can't go back there and say, oh, look at look at what they did. It was really obvious. It wasn't even good cheating. It's still possible to find Agecroft deciding that they're going to board London within the first 200 metres. So that's you know, the thing. That, that, that was the next point. That is absolutely the next point. You can't, we can't say that they've gone out there and they've just said anytime there was a disqualification, anytime there was something a little bit off. sketchy or off, they have they've edited it, which I can understand. I can you can say, oh no, we are we are only showing the best of the regatta. On the day two live stream, you can find Agecroft being disqualified. You can find the umpire sternly waving his red flag at them. And you can watch our good friend, Sean Sezekli, looking like he wants to kill someone as they had to paddle back down the track into the boat sheds. They haven't, they haven't spared Agecroft's blushes, but they've done it for Oxford Brooks. That, that's bullshit. And, you know, again, as we said, this is where all our memberships are revoked. <laughs> this, this is where they're going to... They set up snipers on, on Remenham Hill when we come down to, to Henley next year to, to take us out. I, I get it. But at the same time, that's what podcasts like this are for. The thing is, the whole point about Henley is it's, it's, it's the pinnacle of the club sport. It's, all, it's founded on the traditions of amateurism and Corinthianism, respecting yourself, respecting your opponent, respecting the event, and respecting the the organisation that's put the event on, and none of those things were present in that in that particular instance. But um, could those? But could but could some of those places? You know, in the in the elite events, I mean, fair play to the Irish lads. They they went for it, and they obviously wanted to win. And and rowing with your thumbs not on the end of your oars is really hard. You swallow a lot of river water. I found that out. So <laughs> fair play to them. But there were a lot of known faces who, who looked like they were having a crack at it. And surely there are club athletes of a good standard who could have had, who, who would have given a damn about, I'm a Henley, I'm going for this. Yeah, for, for whom it would have, you know, th this would have been the highlight of their entire rowing career, as opposed to, you know, people who've raced in a couple of Olympic finals. I mean, so certainly the people who we're talking about have said, you know, oh my God, I, I just realized how much I was missing, how much, how incredible the whole business of rowing down Henley is. 
which, okay, we should actually then say, that is what Henley is. Yeah. It matters to people and it Damn. should matter to people. I'm just kind of saying that if you'd let in a couple of guys from pick a half decent club, you know, who otherwise would never even think about putting an entry into, you know, itching Imperial or one of these these clubs out there who could probably put together two really decent scholars yeah. um, at a club level, do that. Uh, but they didn't really. You know, there, there was no one from Vesta. There was no one from Putney Town or anything like that. I And again, it just feels like there was a... De- there was a bit of jobs for the boys, maybe, or, you know, kept coming out a bit of a laugh. I'm interpreting a lot there, and maybe I'm being completely unfair, but again, it didn't, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel great. I'm, I'm sure that the athletes would say that, of course, they respected the competition, and of course, they, they tried their best. They just weren't necessarily good enough on the day, but it is, it is signal and significant that the that a lot of the athletes that came in came from this this radius that you've described at the at the start who would have equally tried just as hard and would have given just as much of a damn even though they would have probably end up being beaten just the same but it is the it is the catchment area and it is the it is the pool that that henley is currently being drawn from in terms of its representation that is an interesting question I mean, Leander in in the in the Wargrave. I've already mentioned Leander competing in club events back in the day of the Thames when they are technically a club, but are they are they really a club like the sort of club that most people row at? Really? Um, um, well, no, I don't think they are. I think I think there is a I think there is a certain demographic reality we have to say say if we're creating a high level women's club eight competition which there are relatively few clubs in this country who can put a high-level women's eight together. I've looked at the numbers, and the numbers are available. You can get them on the Active Live survey. The number of women in rowing has dropped faster than the number of men's men in rowing since 2016 yep. and the number of men in rowing has dropped precipitously since 2016. Um, and that might be what we're looking at here, that this whole, this whole process, everything we're complaining about might be literally the river drying up and we're seeing the wrecks on the bottom. And the reason the river is drying up is because half as many people are rowing this year as we're rowing in 2016. We're losing people from the sport and we're not actually going to get them back if we make our flag piece event exclusive. The thing that kind of comes from that, and and one of the reasons why we are recording this this episode and and, uh, uh, essentially preparing ourselves to be cast into the outer darkness of British rowing from whence there is no return and to being scorned scorned in the streets, spat on in passing, uh, if we ever happen to be anywhere between Marshlock and Hambledon, is because we've, we've noticed the comments from other rowers and rowing types on our Twitter feed. And it's obviously a thing because people are debating it. And with the comments that have come back have been things like, well, that's the reality of the regatta. 
it's only because your club didn't win. If someone else had done it, would you be, be would you be saying had won all of these events? Would you be saying the same thing? And it's like, well, actually, Agecroft winning the Brit was a significant event in the life of the club. Mm. It took those athletes, it took those athletes a decade of work to win the Brit. Yes, they would have won uh, the Thames a lot sooner if they hadn't been essentially coming up against professional athletes in the semis and the final, but it was a long-term project and that made it significant. Winning at Henley shouldn't be an everyday commonplace occurrence unless you are an Olympic champion, unless winning is what you are paid to do. It should be something, not, oh, well, it's Henley again, we'll rock up, we'll win, we'll win 10 of the whatever, you know, 12 that were entered for, that's fine, we'll just put it on. On the, on the pot list. And one of the comments that keeps coming back is, this was all within the rules. This all happened within the, in the rules. They were successful within the rules. And I think that there is, there is always a gap between reality and the legislation that deals with, with reality. So, so when legislation and law is passed, it's always about 10 years out of date because things happen in the real world that move on and people move on and institutions move on. And it takes time for things to catch up so yes did everything happen within the rules yes it did did it necessarily happen within the spirit of the regatta or the spirit of rowing well that's an interesting question because let's look at the club events which are basically what we're talking about and whether people like oxford brooks or leander with highly selective programs are still clubs well yes of course they're still clubs of course they're clubs they have members they have boats they have committees um, they have they have an athletic body, but let's be real about it. These are not clubs like an Agecroft. They're not clubs like a Tyne or a Runcorn or a Northwich or a Talk and Tarn. And, and you can trust me on this. They're not clubs like a Spitfire Boat Club, which is a, a wooden shack on the side of a river that has occasionally functioning toilets. To understand how we've got to this period in British rowing and how we how we currently have the setup that we have and the results that we're getting, we need to have a bit of a, a, a troll back through history. This is the bit where Lewin will go to sleep and, and occasionally point out that I'm being northern and chippy, uh, but that's fine. He's he's earned the right to do that. So let, let's look at Leander because it's the most high profile. It's the most high profile evocation of what we're talking about. So Leander was set up in the Victorian period. And if you've listened to Witness the Fitness uh, episode back in the new year, the Victorian period is the point where leisure activity stopped being the what well-heeled and idle people did and started being things that the great unwashed could also do. This growth of sports, um, which is previously, if you go back into the medieval period, sports were training for war. It's what the aristocracy did while peasants were busy scratching a living from the landscape. But these things were now available for all. But the problem was, and the problem still is to an extent, that British is, Britain is now a class-based society. And some people in the upper and ruling classes didn't like the idea of the plebs not only doing the things that they did, but also being better at them than that. So you get ridiculous inventions. For example, you get the idea of the Corinthian amateur, the person who plays the game for the love of it. And that's wonderful. That's a noble ideal. And it's one we've just been talking about. But the reality of it was they invented that concept because they were no longer good enough to compete with people who actually did have to do it for money or they would starve. So you get the, the idea of the invention of gentlemen and players in cricket 
And the players are the ones who grind out the, the runs and who do the all of the hard yards in the bowling. And the, the gentlemen amateurs are the ones who keep alive the spirit of the game with their flashing late cuts and their, you know, voluminous mustaches. But it was an absolute sophistry because the gentlemen were always paid more than the players, even though one of the qualifying criteria for being a gentleman was the fact that you didn't need to play the game for money. WG Grace made more money from cricket as a gentleman amateur than practically anybody else that you want to put together. You get realities like in boxing, they had to invent the Marcus of Queensby rule so that gentlemen who still wanted to box didn't actually get their faces rearranged by bruisers like Tom Cribb and Jem Belcher, people who actually had to fight or they would starve. And you get gentlemen of the turf, people who like horse flesh, realizing that actually they can't do jump races against a jockey who was raised in some black country shithole on water and coal and is so malnourished that even though they're 38, they look like a six-year-old child. So they invent things like steeplechasing. Okay, right, hang on, hang on, hang on. What, what what's the difference between steeplechasing and what you just mentioned? I, I don't really do horses. Okay, well, steeplechasing is point to point across open country. So it used to be you would race from this steeple that you could see to that steeple in the other shire that you could see. Okay, things like Ascot and and uh, the Derby and all of that kind of stuff were were flat racing, where it's basically a charge around a particular distance, or jump racing, where it's a charge around a particular distance, like the Grand National with jumps thrown in. And if you if you are a gentleman who's been fed on you know steak since they were weaned off their wet nurse, you're going to be naturally heavier than somebody who had to make do with one loaf of bread a year. You invent but things. Cox, in other words. Yeah, a cox is in other words. So you start inventing things that, that that only you can do, and you start making rules about who can do what and who can do where. And this this leads back into the what we're going to call the invention of rowing in Britain. Now, we've talked before, Loon and I, there's a famous aphorism, which is that rowing is something that the French send their condemned men to do, and it's something that the well-educated in England send their sons to do at school. And what you have is you have a professional waterman class in Britain that goes back. You have things like um, Doggett's Coat and Badge. You have things like... Um, Henry VIII used to make watermen race for the um, for the right to row the royal barge, and it was a highly prestigious gig. Um, you had people who were on the water all day ferrying passengers about. The Thames was the great artery of London, but it took gentlemen took gentlemen to invent rowing as we know it to appropriate it as a metaphor for Thomas Arnold's muscular Christianity, where the individual it, it just ticked all of the boxes. You know, going backwards down a river in a boat was what Arnold wanted the ruling classes to become, where the individual becomes part of the collective, where everyone is working in service for everybody else towards a greater goal, towards the ideas of clean and, and healthy and outdoor living. And with that invention comes the invention of the rowing club, the Leanders of this world, the Westminsters of this world, the St. Paul's schools of this world, the Eatons of this world. Gentlemen's Rowing Club, largely based on the Thames, because that's where the money is, and this includes Leander, which was from the very outset set up to be exclusive. Its first membership, I only had 16 gentlemen, and you had to be able to prove that you were a gentleman. Having a gold ring and being able to talk French was not, not necessarily a qualification. And at the same time, you have Henley being set up as a gentleman's regatta. If you were a professional waterman, if you were trade, if you were the wrong class, you couldn't row there. You couldn't be Harry, Harry Clasper couldn't rock up at Henley. And the reason he couldn't rock up at Henley was a class thing. But the, the real reason was he would have beaten everybody. 
because he did it for money. He didn't do it for fun. Now, now this is also important. Um, who exactly is Harry Clasper? What, what was he good at? What was he famous for? And just like that, a lifelong friendship ends. Jesus wept, possibly because he was on a cross with nails in his hands. I don't know. We'd have to ask him. Let's get him on the podcast. Harry Clasper was a Geordie waterman, a professional waterman who invented the modern rowing shell, who invented the, the, the um, outboard rigger and who invented the sliding seat. And he used to race for money, largely between um, the Tyne Bridge, the old Tyne Bridge and Scotswood Bridge against anybody who would, who would bet against him. And he won a lot of money doing it. He was a very famous waterman, but he was Northern. So there's one tick against him. He was a professional. So there's another tick against him. And he was lower class. So there is three, basically three strikes and he's out. So you couldn't have a professional from the Thames rocking up. Uh, I mean, races between professional watermen and, and the upper classes did happen, but largely the upper classes tended to get hammered then. So you might go, well, what's, what's this got to do with Leander as it currently is, Aaron? This is ridiculous. We are all equal in this country. We live in a meritocracy. Uh, our daughters, if they work hard, can pass all of their exams and in open competition, one day they too might be queen. Whereas at the moment, their only chance of being a princess is as a broodmare for a chinless wonder. From its outset, is exclusive, it's invitational. It's it, part of its mission statement is to do well at Henley and to provide athletes for the national squad. It's part of its part of its setup. And it did that very well for a long period of time because it was the de facto home of the squad for a long time. When you have decades and decades and decades of concentrating all of the talent and all of the prestige at one point, it skews the balance. And let's be, you know, if we're gonna be blunt about it, let's be real here. The balance is still skewed. British Rowing's pyramid, organisationally and conceptually, all points to the Thames. Everything is funneled to that patch of river between Caversham and Leander. The administrative power base is still located there. The coaching power base is located there. The clubs and the schools that have been doing this for 100 or 150 years are still, are still there. Is it a club? Of course it's a club. But there is a world of difference, a world of difference between being... Someone decent, you know, like Lewin, I'm not going to say myself, I was, I was not ever in, the, in his class. Someone decent at Agecraft who's doing a full-time job, building a career and adding training on top of that. And someone who essentially takes all of the, the metrics of what an international athlete looks like, training full-time at a club geared to making them successful because it makes them successful too and maintains their preeminence. That's not a level playing field. That's one boat starting partway down the course and the other one being held on the start line. And Leander, with all due respect, it isn't a club like Runcorn Northwich or Agecroft or Tyne or, or any one of the ones that we've mentioned. It's still exclusive. Yes, as Jack, when he came on, it's broadening its reach out on the club side. We might even get through the door if we were to put an application in. But its athletes are uniformly pushing for or have aspirations of being elite internationals. This comes back to something we've talked to Martin Cross about and we've talked to Jack about, who is a dedicated club man, and we've talked to Andy Hodge about, which is that Martin Cross was an international at Thames Tradesman. Andy, Andy was an international at Molesy. Um, Jack is very dedicated to being a maidenhead man. And there was a time when clubs held on to their internationals and clubs, Steve Redgrave was a Marlow man as much as he was a GB man. He was, he was a very active club member, as Jez, as Jez Moore pointed out. But we now have a system where as soon as someone looks like they're semi-decent, 
they get funneled into one of these highly selective programs. And most of these highly selective programs are based in the South. Yes, we have world-class start in Newcastle. And yes, we have world-class start in Manchester, the outer darkness of the North. But once they reach a certain point, like Graham Thomas, who was an Agecroft man and who still represents Agecroft, God bless him, he's doing his work in Cabersham, doing his work in Cabersham. I realize I've talked a lot because I've crammed a lot of history in there, Lewin, but let's, you know, it's great to have Henley back, of course it is, and we celebrate British rowing, and we're part of it, whether they like it or not, God bless them. But let's not pretend that it's a level playing field or all is rosy in the garden just because, yay, blazers, yay, dresses, yay, pims, yay, Henley, everything is fine, because the results indicate that it's not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing there I can disagree with. So part of me, again, comes back to this idea that there needs to be, whether it's at Henley, whether it's as part of British rowing full stop, there needs to be some kind of protected, a new protected category that gives people the opportunity to race without the presence of time-rich, semi-professional, professional athletes. Even if, even if they're paid a pittance, even if they're on a grant, um, even if they're living with their parents, whatever it is, but people who can put in six hours of physical training six days a week. Up against such people, you, you don't stand a chance, really. There needs to be, you know, and I'm, I'm terrified of saying this, but I, there needs to be an amateur category. Which is ironic because Leander and the regatta itself was set up for the gentleman amateur. And now yeah. it's a I mean, I, I, and, and I'm fully aware that if you, one of the terrible things about saying we need a category for people who don't do as much work as all those hardworking professionals out there is that it becomes crap. You, you know, it becomes the place where you go if you don't want to do a lot of work. You know, I fully recognise the unintended consequences of all these things. But if we don't have some way that somebody with a full-time job can race someone else with a full-time job, neither of which jobs actually involve being paid to do something involving rowing, you're going to end up with the situation that I think quite a few Olympic sports are rapidly heading towards where... You have kids doing it and you have elite professionals being paid by the state to do it. And by all accounts, that's what rowing clubs are like in Germany. And if we want to go that way, we're doing the right thing because nobody is really, nobody's going to be bothered to go and pursue the pinnacle if they know that their role is get to, you know, get to Wednesday, get to Thursday, and then you're going home. You're just going to be spat out the back. And so I do think there is a requirement for a new, clearly defined, protected category for working stiffs. And the pushback will be, yes, it's within the rules. You, you've just It's just because they're successful and you're not, and all of the rest of it. But it's incredibly short-sighted because... The growth in rowing in this country was fueled by the success of its elite athletes, mm -hmm. making it an attractive sport, 
a safe sport for for you know children to get into, uh, for adults to get into, a sport for all. And but when you actually have this thing where where actually you can only be good at it in certain places, and if you rope somewhere else and you go to a regatta like Henley um, against these people, you're going to get absolutely mullered. Eventually, at some point, if all of the focus is just on a few clubs and a few clubs doing well, as we've already seen. The participant, the participation numbers are dropping off. So you, you, if you wanted to become our thing again, if you wanted to become this Victorian thing that's hours and hours alone, and no, you can't have it because you're you're not the right person for this, or you're not. And by that, I don't mean in a class sense necessarily, but I just mean in a physical sporting sense, able to. If you want to, if you want to row at university and you don't have these scores, don't apply to Oxford Brooks. Well, here's the reality. I can't, I can't count the amount of rowers that Agecroft got from Manchester Uni or from the Met or from Salford who did nothing at university on a, on a rowing level, who achieved nothing, but went on to become club stalwarts, who, who went on to, to run squads, who went on to get to places like Henley and Women's Henley, who, who went on to win Jacksons and all of those kind of things because they needed a longer time in the sport to develop into the rowers that they were going to be. It's incredibly short-sighted to cut off the talent pool like this. And the thing is, these clubs, the Oxford Brookses, the you know the Leanders, they're not going to give up. That you know they're not, they're going to push back against the these ideas because they benefit from these from these arrangements. Henley benefits from these arrangements. They're selling points. You know, come to come here and train to do this. Come to the, our club and you will be able to do this. But unless we have a change in the way that we we view and administer and, and let people into the sport here, it is going to go back to being what it was, which is the preserve of the few who are exposed to it, who can afford to do it and who have the opportunity to do it. In other words, an exclusive sport for well-educated, moneyed and largely Thames-based people and, and, and clubs. Sport that is dominated by time-rich, elongated aerobic monsters. Yes, essentially, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that this because I want Leander to accelerate my membership. It's probably in the shredder even as we, even as we speak. But when a club is set up specifically to win Henley and has a program that's designed to specifically win Henley and has benefited, benefited for decades from its proximity to the regatta and the national squad, then it sells itself. And where you need to be in order to win or do well at Henley, then it's naturally going to attract more people who want to do that, those who can do that, and those who can afford to train like elite athletes, even when they technically aren't. So yeah, it's a club. And I, I've read all, all of the tweets about it's within the rules. They're, they're a club. Yes, it is. But it's not a representative one. It represents itself. I'm, I'm not sure it's unique anymore. I think Oxford Brooks is very, very similar. But there you go. But I mean, let's be honest. This isn't some snappy provincial rant about Henley because, you know, they, they haven't let us in yet. It, you know, the, the dress codes, yes, they are ridiculous. Of course they are ridiculous, but it's a deliberate ridiculous. It's to give the event a certain look. Otherwise you look like, you know, you get men turning up looking like they've been poured into the suit that they use for court appearances and ladies rocking up looking like they've just finished a hard night on a street corner. And yes, <laughs> I have been to ladies day at Ascot. You know, that's fine. We dress up because the circus is in town. Participation numbers are down. Talent is being funneled into a few clubs and those clubs are then funneling it into this particular geographical location. The thing that made British rowing attractive, Olympic success, has stopped happening after Tokyo. And there's a real danger that if Henley turns into a procession for a handful of clubs, 
it will become an us and them thing again. And that would be a tragedy for the sport as a whole. But what can we do about it? Limit entries per club? Limited number of entries have a very definite definition. I know that's, you know, almost a tautology, a definite definition. Have an accurate definition of what a club actually is in the modern age. Yeah, what what, what is a rowing club? What is a high-performance centre? What's a rowing club? What's a high-performance centre? What is a start? Because let's be honest, it's a matter of time before before essentially a start crew wins something significant and then everyone who rocks up at Remenham is going to start writing angry letters to the committee. Flags of convenience. The the amount of people who, who magically appeared in a boat in time for Henley. Yeah, we get it. People get parachuted in. You know, people get parachuted in before races. It happens. Yeah, um, but, you know, there's, there's people getting parachuted in and being through this, but then, but then there's getting people getting parachuted in from the US and, I, and from being on a scholarship in a US university. And I just, I can't quite cope with that. Um, Thames wife old boat, you know where you got your ginger from. Proves your point about gingers, though. Yeah. You want to win, get a ginger. Get a ginger. Um, even if you have to go to an American university scholarship program. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think there's a possibility of limiting entries. That that's the, that's the very obvious one, is just like no more than four entries for the regatta as a whole, no more than two entries per, you know, experience level. So no more than two entries at club or no more than one entry at club. No more than two entries at intermediate. No more than two entries at uh, at open. I think that's possible. I, I think, think I think there's a possibility of disallowing repeat appearances. So maybe only two appearances at Henley. I mean, not even winning appearances, but an athlete may only race at Henley twice in three years, twice in four years, you arguably, you've got two years, you've got two shots at it to get it right, then go away and do something else. And then, so you might have two years and then a grace period of a year and then you can come back sort of thing. So so yeah. you, might, you might stagger it. Time trials work as long as there is a genuine kind of punishment for not doing your best. So the idea that I had was that the only way you could get your medal or your certificate for winning the C final was if you were the person who had to slavishly and psychophantically whoop, holler, cheer, and present the medal to the winners of the A final. And and, and you, you had, had to be there kind of like their dog's body for the rest of the day. And if you wanted to avoid that, you, you, you better like try and get into the, into the best possible final. That's not really rowing though. That's just um, social engineering and social embarrassment. <laughs> the, 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 the other thing to say, the thing to add is, you know, Henley is, it's a well-established um, regatta. 
it's a fantastic feat of organization. It has a huge amount of plus points. I mean, for example, I thought that um, the increase in uh, ladies' events, I thought it was fantastic to see. I thought there was some, some really good, really good contests and some really nice rowing. But let's be honest, Lewin, I very much doubt that anyone from Henley Regatta Committee is going to listen to this. And if they are, they, they will sanction the hit, I'm fairly sure, on both of us. But they're not going to listen to it and go, yes, of course, they, they make good points. They're going to go, we are the most successful regatta in the country, in the world. F off. This is something that I would say to anyone who complains about the way that Henley Regatta is set up. As far as I know, they are the only profitable rowing event in the country. I think they're probably looking at this and they're probably coming up with better suggestions. And I would be very, very surprised if there isn't, if there aren't a hell of a lot of uh, preferential buys into pre-qualifications for a lot of regional clubs next year. Um, I don't know if there's going to be an official turning around and saying, ah, oh, no, Oxbrooks, you, you know, high performance centers can only put three crews into the gasser in any one year. Um, because, you know, partly I'm sure there are ways around this. There would suddenly be a lot of entries from tourist rowing club. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, it will probably be done the way Henley has always done things with a quiet word to the right people. Yes. And say, you know, we're very, very grateful that you made up the numbers. We're very, very grateful that you, um, you provided two boats to race the grand when no one else, no other international crews would show up. Maybe, maybe that's why they're, why, you know, Henley's YouTube channel are, uh, saving Oxford Brooks's blushes. Maybe Oxford Bru Brooks have done the regatta race solid by putting 12 crews into race. Maybe it's just that Henley Royal Regatta know what they're doing and next year will be very difficult and they've dealt with thin years before. I think that there is something in the fact that it's a, it's, it's a post-pandemic, post-COVID, even though we're still uh, amongst COVID year. The other point, I think you are right. They will be looking at it, and they they will be looking at the the preponderance. I would I would note that it took them a long time to get round to telling Leander that actually you shouldn't really be in the Thames. But however, when they did it, my understanding is that it was polite, but it was very very firm about it. These are clever people. These are people who are at the top of their game in their professions and who are, as Tez pointed out when he came on, people get involved with Henley Royal Regatta. People are stewards of Henley because they love the regatta and they love the racing. The social thing is a huge thing. Of course it is. And, and you know, they've they've stopped it turning into a Tarts Day Out, um, which is what um, Ladies' Day at Ascot has become. And more power to them. But their eyes are always on the rowing. And maybe they evolve slightly slower than, you know, rabid revolutionaries like ourselves might wish, but they they keep the regatta chugging along, which is essentially their job. But it just seemed a little bit this year like, okay, this is interesting. Yeah, Whereas, it, 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 seemed like, it seemed less than Corinthian this year. Let's just it seemed less than Corinthian. 
I think that's a good place to maybe leave it. It seemed less than Corinthian, and I'm sure they'll address that. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I believe it's time for Bowside to hold. Uh, stroke side under. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Let's take it from there.